just as Australia was winding up its uh, convict transportation in the 1850s and 1860s, France decided it wanted to give this fascinating scheme a shot. It began sending convicts to New Caledonia to begin a penal colony with conditions as harsh as the worst of Australia's prisons. Now, this would continue for 36 long years, and Australia was not at all happy about these foreign convicts being so close. And yet, we know so little about it. Bryony Nielsen is an historian of France and its empire, and in particular of its criminal justice system, And she's uncovered the story of an incarcerated French poet and the French-speaking Australian woman who would befriend him and bring him to Australia. Bryony is an honorary associate in the History Department of Sydney University. She's also the editor of the academic journal French History and Culture. And best of all, she's sitting here with me in the studio. Bryony, we really don't know much about this uh, this episode in our region, so could you set the scene for me? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Philip. It's great to be in the studio with you. Um, it's, I think, perhaps the case that in Australia we think of the convict past, our convict past, as exceptional, and we forget that, in fact, convict transportation was a practice that many empires around the world um, used over the centuries. So there's a very long history of convict transportation. Let's just remind the listener, we've got Portugal, Spain, Germany, Denmark, all with penal colonies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the biggest one, of course, is the, um, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Empire. If we're talking about scale... That just blows everyone else um, out of the water. That's millions of people. The the British transport hundreds of thousands. Um, so the you know I, what I'm interested in is the fact that you know New Caledonia and Australia had a relationship, um, and they were New Caledonia was built um, in the image of Australia. The the French were very conscious of what the British had had done here, and they studied it in detail. Um, they didn't adopt all of the policies, but they learnt that history. Now, there was a worldwide humanitarian movement opposing slavery, but also transportation. That's right, yeah. So when France introduces this policy, it's really in the context of a a global movement in, in polite society of sort of liberal reformers who really see no virtues in, in sending convicts over the seas to basically dump them on the other side of the world. Um, they prefer the idea of, you know, the, the prison where you can observe prisoners and you can make them better. Now, for a decade, the French had been sending convicts to uh, French Guiana in South America, but it wasn't working, was it? The uh, tropics were not a good place to have prisoners. That's right. It wasn't conducive to the labour that the French wanted to extract from the convicts because the point wasn't just to dump them, it was to get them to work. Um, but there were all sorts of you know, deadly tropical diseases in French Guiana, um, dysentery and, and yellow fever. And so the mortality rate was incredibly high. And so this is one of the reasons why New Caledonia is settled on as a good alternative because the climate, it's semi-tropical, um, but it's its much more, um, it's easier to work in. Let's whiz back to Paris, which is under the uh, authoritarian rule of uh, Emperor Napoleon III, nephew of uh, 
quite famous fellow. That's right, yeah. So he's the, the sort of the second version of, of Napoleon I. Napoleon III runs an authoritarian government in the um, 1850s and 1860s. Um, so the, the policy of convict transportation is introduced by him. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's associated with sort of French tyranny um, and he sees it as a good option for getting rid of um, all sorts of unwanteds. But there was criticism of this policy at home at the time. There was, yeah. So um, these these critics, and there were a lot of them, um, of uh, Emperor Napoleon III thought that um, a prison system was preferable somewhere where they thought people could be detained, observed, improved, and then returned to society. And so the opposition was based on the idea that convict transportation is predicated on the idea of, you know, basically just sending people away and never letting them back. And so it had this, it was actually referred to as the dry guillotine. So there's no blood involved, but, you know, it essentially kills them. A dry guillotine, for heaven's sake. And we should note that even when a, a democratic government came in France, the convict transportation system continued. It did continue and, in fact, it expanded. Um, so uh, the French Third Republic, which comes into being in 1870. Um, in 1885, that regime introduces uh, the transportation of repeat offenders. So these are essentially vagabonds, vagrants, petty offenders, anyone who's committed an offence more than once. It doesn't have to be a serious one. Um, they are transported and for life. Now, people stole things, but in a sense, so did France. It effectively stole New Caledonia. It did, yeah. So France claims New Caledonia um, as its own in 1853, in September 1853, and, and just a few months later, Van Diemen's Land stops taking convicts. Um, so New Caledonia doesn't become a penal colony until the 1860s, but there's this real perception in the Australian colonies from the start and even before that France has, you know, big ambitions and great intentions. Bryony, it is such a shocking thought that nations could just take or acquire. Absolutely, yeah. No, this was a, this was an example of French chauvinism. Um, I mean, the British displayed the same chauvinism in, in claiming Australia um, decades earlier, but there's this rush in the 19th century for territory and, and expansion of, of power across the globe. So we've talked about uh, a distinctive part of the French system being exile for life, but there were also political prisoners. There were, yeah. So um, I mentioned the Third Republic comes into being in 1870. In 1871, there's the Paris Commune, um, which is a, a radical participatory democracy, which gets set up in the city of Paris. And Karl Marx approved. As he, he approved of it, you know, yeah. greatly. And it, it's a, a bit of a, a sort of a beacon for left-wing political organising. And it had various policies, which in fact were later adopted by the Third Republic, which was not <laughs> a, um, not the same kind of structure. But they they did things like they, they separated the church and state. They had free um, education. And so it was a very... Anyway, fascinating experiment in, in democratic organising. We might come back to that again later, but mm. let's go back to this permanent exile. By contrast, most convicts sent to Australia did a seven-year term. That's right, yeah. So most um, transported 
people to Australia were not obliged to stay here or in the colony of New South Wales or, or Van Diemen's Land, but their sentence uh, was effectively a life sentence because their passage was their own responsibility. To return home, they had to pay their own way. Um, and you can imagine how difficult that would be for a, a person in the 18th and early 19th century. So effectively, it was a life sentence, but it wasn't actually written in. The French write in the deportation and transportation for life. That's their ambition. They want to keep people out forever. Sitting with me in the studio is Bryony Nielsen. Now, they under the French system, once they were released, they still had to remain on New Caledonia. That's right, yeah. So there was also this uh, other policy of you were free to leave the penal colony. You could live freely in New Caledonia, but you couldn't return to France. So you could go somewhere else. And many people, in fact, did come to Australia um, as an alternative to staying in New Caledonia. There were escapees, weren't there, and stowaways at the time? There were, yeah. So this was, um, if you look at, I mean, Trove, those newspapers have lots of accounts of um, convicts who wash up on the shores of the Australian colonies in the 19th century. Um, and there's all sorts of reactions to that, um, concerns about an invasion, um, sometimes great sympathy. Um, so there are some really interesting stories in the uh, 1870s, a very famous case, a, um, a communard, so one of these participants in the Paris Commune, Henri Rochefort, he and a bunch of others managed to get away on a boat. They're then picked up in a vessel um, and brought to Australia. They land in Newcastle um, and the response there is very positive. They're welcomed as, you know, these, these are political prisoners and they're welcomed as sort of, you know, heroes of, of the working, working people. Um, so, yeah, there are all sorts of people That's who... That's an aspect of Newcastle history I knew nothing of. There you go, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Now, let's introduce our poet because he tells us uh, what the place was like. He uh, did spend four decades incarcerated on New Caledonia. Introduce us to him. Yeah, so um, he's a really quite an interesting character. His name is Julien de Sanary. Um, that's his, his pseudonym, that's, that's his pen name. His real name was Marius Julien. Um, and he's born in 1859 in a small fishing village in southeastern France, um, which was known at the time as Saint-Nazaire. It became uh, later called um, Sanary. And so he takes up this, um, the name of the place he comes from, Julien de Sanary. Um, and so he, as a young man, he commits various uh, small offences, um, which sort of build up to assaults, um, and he gets transported uh, to New Caledonia um, in 1881 after assaulting a prison guard, um, and his sentence is, you know, he has to stay in New Caledonia for life. He can't, or he can't, he can't return to France anyway. Now, what was really unusual about him was that uh, only two percent of French convicts could read and write, and here he is, a fully-fledged poet. That's right. Um, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a trained poet, and he's very aware. Um, there are a few manuscripts of his poems that now exist, very um, very precious documents. Um, he's very aware of the fact that he's not really properly trained in poetry, but he could read and write. Uh, he must have been educated in France. But we don't know how. We don't know how. Okay. Yeah. He had little exercise books. Um, so he wrote his poems. It's quite possible that he read them out to, to the other convicts, but really he was trying to express himself to a literate audience. So he'd write for the prison doctors uh, for the prison administrators, uh, he'd also he'd sell these little um, exercise books to anyone who visited, um, and so they they landed in some you know some, a lot of a variety of hands. 
Well, it was probably just as well if he didn't read the maps of other prisons because, God, they, they sounded very bleak. They are bleak. I mean, you can imagine what you would write about They were about you... death and decay and, uh, well, they seem to be his major preoccupations. They are, yeah. So he's reflecting the you know the circumstances of his, his incarceration. It's not a happy existence. Um, he yearns for the south of France. He yearns for his family. Uh, he wants his freedom. And interestingly, I mean, this is where we're sort of heading with this, he's, he's thinking about where he could go. Uh, he can't go back to France, but maybe he could go to Australia. And so Australia really is this sort of, he, talk, he talks about it as the promised land. It's the land of freedom. I'm sure you're well aware of the, uh, the lyric, Southern trees bear strange fruit. You know, talking of uh, trees used for hanging uh, African-Americans. He also took a bleak view of trees. Yeah, he did. He he sees trees. I mean, he's a great observer of nature and he, he loves nature, trees, birds, um, and he sees the, the trees as uh, they're sort of a, a reminder of, of hangings for him as well. Um, he, when he looks at a tree, when he hears the rustling of the leaves, he thinks of bodies hanging. So it's, yeah, as you say, it's, it's profoundly bleak. The longest poem tells of the worst... Uh, Tell me about Le Camp Brune. So this um, was known as the abattoir. Um, this was a, a, a sort of a site of secondary punishment. So that's where convicts who disobey um, orders or misbehave um, are sent. And so Julien de Saint-Henri is sent there and uh, has to labour there. And the, the conditions are just, you know, horrendous. If you think the conditions are bad in the normal, ordinary, regular penal colony, um, they just get even worse. Well, you make the point that Camp Brun was to uh, to New Caledonia what Norfolk Island had been to uh, to the colony of New South Wales. Exactly. With the only difference that it wasn't an island. I suppose that's the difference. But, you know, it was surrounded by bush. It was, you know, very hard to get to. So it was effectively an island, a territorial island. And his poem tells of uh, prisoners tied up and shackled in cells and their their throats slit by brutal guards. Yeah, he's no he's no fan of the the prison administrators, the prison guards. So tens of thousands of kilometres from the uh, French metropolis, this camp's director exercises total and entirely arbitrary control. Exactly. And you think about the critiques of early New South Wales. We had a similar um, a similar criticism of our early governors, that they were too powerful. Jeremy Bentham, actually, that was one of his, his major critiques of the British system in New South Wales, that, you know, all power was in the hands of the governor. And Julien de Saint-Henri recognises this um, similarly in New Caledonia, that there's no democracy, there's no government, um, there's no power in the hands of the people. It's It's authoritarian. Now, Julian's luck changes when a woman from the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, hears about him. Yeah, this is, it's such an interesting story. Um, her name is uh, Walla Miranda, that's her pseudonym, um, but she's born Gertrude Poyet. Uh, she's born in Australia um, in 1863, um, and she grows up west of the Blue Mountains. She's a poet, a novelist, and sometimes painter. She is, yeah. So she, um, she's an aspiring one in any case. Um, she's got great ambitions. Uh, she maintains a correspondence with the editor and publisher, Alfred Stevens. And so uh, she, she wants to 
uh, have her work published and she she enters a, a painting in the Archibald Prize. She's a finalist in 1922 um, and I believe it's a portrait of um, Alfred Stevens. And she writes poetry. Uh, she doesn't have much luck in getting it published. Um, that comes a little later. Um, but she, yeah, she's a she's a real uh, she's a very interesting character. Now she has a connection to New Caledonia. She does, yes. Yeah. So her first husband, um, who is a, a he works in a mine. I mean, the area that she's from is a silver mining area west of um, Bathurst. Um, and she, uh, her husband goes to, is recruited to work in New Caledonia in the late 19th century in the nickel mines. Um, so he, he's a manager of a mine, but unfortunately uh, a tragedy um, strikes. One day he's, he's going into the mine to, to check that the detonators have gone off and has the horrible discovery that they haven't. And so he's killed in a blast. Um, so he dies in New Caledonia and she travels to, you know, go and, and deal with the... And that, do you, th- you think, is when she came across another poet? That's my suspicion. So as with so much of history, uh, we don't know. We don't know the details. It's even remarkable that we know about these, well, Julien de Sanary particularly. He's just an ordinary convict. He's, you know, he, he wrote poetry. That's how we know about him. And I think she might have got one of these exercise books of his poems... Uh, when she was visiting um, after the death of her husband, but we don't know. Bronnie, how on earth did she manage to get him to Australia? So um, it wasn't impossible for convicts in his situation to leave New Caledonia for somewhere else. It was just that they couldn't come back to France. So she petitions the president um, at the time for, for permission, um, and you can see these documents, her, you know, her, her requests that he'd be allowed to, to come and live with her and she'll take care of you know, all his expenses and so on. Um, so she makes a, a plausible, persuasive case. Um, and in 1920, he leaves this, you know, this island that he's been incarcerated on for, as you say, four decades of his life. Finally, he's free and he travels the, the waters and comes and, and meets her in, in Australia. Keep telling the story. I'm I'm a gog. Well, um, it's 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 quite beautiful actually. So he um, Julian de Sanoy sees Walla Miranda as this um, saviour. She's the one who really changes the course of his life. So he arrives in Sunny Corner. Um, some of your listeners might be familiar with Sunny Corner, the small village, which has a lovely name, but is actually very cold. Um, <laughs> it snows there a lot, apparently. Um, and, and Julien de Saint-Henri spends the rest of his life with her there. He's buried there. If anyone wants to go and investigate the cemetery, um, there's a beautiful tombstone. It's a bit hard to find, but there is a tombstone to Julien de saint in Sunny Corner Cemetery. Um, and he writes poetry there with Wall of Miranda for the ni- last nine years of his life. Um, and they live apparently an idyllic life. Well, you make the point that he was physically and uh, psychologically damaged and uh, unable to get work. Yeah, so he he was profoundly tormented um, by his experiences, as you know anyone would be. Um, his body is wrecked. Um, there's only one photo of him that exists, um, and that's taken in the 1920s in Australia. And he's sitting there in a, a suit. He's got a cat on his lap. Um, but he's an uh, old man. He's an old man. If he opened his mouth, I, I think he'd be missing a lot of teeth. Um, his, his body is wrecked. His mind is tormented. But he often wrote of her in glowing terms with, 
much love and gratitude. Yeah, she was she was his his guardian angel. Let me ask you the Netflix question: <laughs> yes. Was it was it a love affair? Yeah, I don't think it's a racy story. Um, I mean, it it might be, but it's really a story of um, kindred spirits more than anything else. You know, they shared this this love and this sensitivity of um, an appreciation of, of poetry, um, and so they really lived in this sort of little idyllic setting, um, writing poetry and and um, engaging in in the world in that way. Gertrude is a whole other story which uh, perhaps we can come back to and tell us about in the future. But, Bryony, thank you very much for popping into the program. My guest has been Bryony Nielsen, a Sydney Uni historian and editor of the journal French History and Culture. Thanks so much, Philip. Pleasure. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.